Hello and welcome to Career Move Secrets, a brand new podcast for active job seekers and the career minded. In each episode, I'll interview a special guest from my global network. Guests will include seasoned recruiters, experienced hiring managers from companies big and small, and successful individuals who have developed great careers through making great career moves. My aim is to uncover and share my guests' unique perspectives, their insights, and their insider advice on job searching, interviewing, and career enhancement. My name is Tony Talbot, and I've been working in the recruitment industry as an international headhunter for over 20 years. I'm the creator of CareerMoveSecrets.com, a step-by-step online course for job seekers that I designed to be the ultimate guide to getting hired in the hidden job market. I will add my perspective to the conversation and together with my guests, we hope to provide some genuine, actionable insider advice that will help you execute your next career move. Thanks for joining us today. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Career Move Secrets. And today's guest is Christopher Bishop, a TEDx speaker, a LinkedIn learning instructor, a writer, and a consultant. In fact, Chris describes himself as a nonlinear, multimodal careerist who has had eight careers uh, over the last 40 years or so, um, ranging from rock star to IBM consultant. Hello, Christopher. How are you? I'm good, Tony. How are you? Nice to be here. Thanks. I'm very well, actually. Yeah, very well indeed. How, how's life in? You're in uh, Connecticut. Yeah, I'm in Connecticut, right? about an hour kind of northeast of the city, kind of up in the wood burbs, we call it out here. Um, things are good. I mean, it's there's definitely a lockdown vibe. People are not hanging out like they used to, you know. Um, so doing a fair amount of, you know, curbside pickup and, um, you know, not. I think we've eaten in restaurants outside like twice since March, that kind of thing. But knock on wood, everyone's healthy, and the, the town seems to be safe, and just kind of waiting it out at this point, you know. It sounds very similar to here, actually, where you know we don't go into the the main cities anymore. We all congregate in the the suburbs or the little villages, whatever you want to call them. We feel more comfortable in those spaces than we do in the big the big sprawl. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I used to go into the city well, three or four times a month at least, like for meetings or to go to events or attend a book, you know readings or whatever um but no longer i mean i've been in the city since i think early march and it was definitely like a moment like it was like let's see there was a new york times event they run these kind of in-person events at the time center beautiful space where i did my tedx talk actually and it was like the like the 11th of march and this thing was like on the 13th or something anyway and it was like hmm i don't think i'm going to go into the city for this one i think i'm gonna like pass <laughs> It's just getting too uh, too dangerous. Well, if you, if you're on the edge of New York City, you, you're going to want to go in. What a wonderful place! I took the family there uh, only a year or two ago, and we 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 uh, we absolutely uh, loved it. Yeah, for for a week, it was superb. Um, yeah, no, it's great. So yes, if I if yeah, if I was that close to it, I'd be tempted to go in quite a lot. I'm I'm sure, but. Um, Chris, I obviously have know a little bit about you. We've 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 sort of interacted a little bit off off air there, uh, but of course, my guests will not know much about you. So, could you give me um, the career history? It sounds like it may be a very interesting one. Sure. So, I'll try to do the summary version because I can tend to drone on, and I apologize in <laughs> advance. But um, as you as you said, I describe myself as a nonlinear, multimodal careerist. By that, I mean I've done lots of different things in lots of different disciplines 
in lots of different settings. And I would say that each of those could be carved out and considered a career because I have friends or colleagues who are still doing what I did across, across, you know, across these 45 years um, and, and making a living to varying degrees, right? But so I, I have a degree in German Lit from Bennington College, a small liberal arts school in Vermont. I minored in music, um, played in a symphony uh, there and played in rock bands and studied with Jimmy Garrison, who was John Coltrane's bass player, quite a famous jazz saxophone player. Um, got a gig after college touring with this band called McKendry Spring, toured all over the U.S. and Canada and Europe, open for bands like the Eagles and ZZ Top. I was like 22 years old, making a record in England and went to mix it in London at Basing Street Studios, ran into Mick Jagger on the way to the men's room. He's like, hello, I'm Mick. I'm like, yeah, I know who you are, man. I'm like this young American bass player over here making a record. Um, so the band did three albums and then broke up the typical kind of bell curve, right? Who's the band? Get me that band. Who's that band? Okay. So when the band broke up, I moved to New York thinking I could uh, run with the big dogs, see if I could, you know, cut it in the city. And over time was able to work as a, as a freelance bass player. I toured with Robert Palmer. I did two tours in a live album at the Dominion Theater in London with him. Um, and then came home up after one you know, tour with somebody and, and said, how do I sleep in my own bed at night? What do I need to do to get off the road? And my friend said, jingles, man. You got to break into the session scene. So basically through sheer dint of perseverance, and this is way before LinkedIn or Facebook or any kind of even uh, CRM tools, right? I bought a box with three by five cards and cracked the, the jingle scene. I went around with my tape, introducing myself, got names of anybody and everybody I knew associated with that business, and eventually found a producer who thought I was cool, had a cool haircut or a hip shirt or whatever, and started playing on Miller Genuine Draft Beer commercials. And then I had credibility, and then I actually had an actual reel of me playing uh, in the studio and, and ended up, knock on wood, making a pretty good living as a session guy, although quickly realized that we were sort of the bottom of the value chain, if you will, right? So if, you know, if I couldn't make it, they just went to the next bass player on the list that could do it. And being New York, there were like, you know, easily a hundred or more people that could do what I could do. So all about relationships. We can talk about networking at some point during the, the podcast. But so I realized that this was going to be a different kind of model. And as I described um, in my course, my LinkedIn learning course, by 1985, music became data. So guys and gals um, could buy equipment that would allow them to sample and sequence using computers and, and devices that could capture instrument timbres and reproduce them from a keyboard, right, from memory, if you will. So anyway, I went to work at a jingle house, which is what they call a music company that write, you know, produces music for radio and TV commercials, and learned how to run a synclavier which was the state-of-the-art digital musical instrument at the time, and I actually sampled some of my bass sounds into the synclavier so I could at least feel like I was sort of playing my own instrument, my own timbre or whatever, um, and wrote music for television for about five years, and then became intrigued by this wacky thing called the World Wide Web in the early mm -hmm. 90s. I said, well, that's probably going to have global socio-cultural and business impact, and they're, maybe they're going to need music as well. So... I tried to 
pursue writing music for, at that point, CD-ROMs and websites. Of course, websites are mute, basically, except for Nickelodeon and maybe uh, Cartoon Network. Um, but anyway, I taught myself how to produce websites. I read a lot of books. I went to meetings in New York, the New York Mac Users Group, where David Pogue was a frequent speaker, um, took classes, stayed up late at night surfing the web, looking at the source code to see how they did it. Um, and built a website for another uh, jingle house in New York and was hooked. Like, this is pretty cool. I want to do this more. So hung out a shingle as a web producer and got some jobs at uh, a couple of seminal interactive agencies in New York. And then through meeting an acquaintance, a woman on the train commuting into New York on a Sunday, working on Deep Blue at IBM, I got an opportunity to interview at, uh, at IBM and was hired into corporate internet programs and worked there for 15 years in a variety of roles. Well, I think it's worth mentioning that there, was, there were like a dozen of us all from different backgrounds in this uh, account manager team. Uh, there was a guy who was actually a jazz guitar player who worked in like a marketing firm, a woman who taught graphic design at NYU, another woman who was a TV producer who'd uh, been a dancer and uh, film director or whatever. Um, but we knew how to produce websites. So again, message for your audience is um, we had skills that were needed at the time. It wasn't that we were particularly gifted or talented. I mean, to be candid, it's like IBM needed people who knew how to produce websites and could deal with, you know, business executives who had a P&L um, and help them get the job done. So um, these execs quickly realized that they could sell stuff with this wacky web thing. Um, so I built a series of extranets. I built 160 extranets in four months, running a team of 20 people. We were just cranking um, for a bunch of IBM's largest customers, put their catalog you know, on this extranet, and they could buy stuff, and they could uh, tweak their portfolio. You know, We want to add ThinkPads. Uh, we want to add AS400s or whatever. Um, so it was a really interesting experience. I did a lot of different things, a couple stints in headquarters, um, me at IBM corporate headquarters, who would have thought, but I worked in HR comms for a while, back out into the line of business, came back and worked in corporate citizenship, did a lot of social media, a lot of work in virtual worlds. IBM had an emerging business opportunity where they, the chairman at the time, Sam Palmisano, gave this group $10 million and two years of air cover from a P&L to develop a second life model. Like, is there a pony in here? Can we actually you know, do something and make money with this. And we built sites for Deutsche Bank and Circuit City. And But it turns out the, there wasn't really a model for IBM um, in that space. So anyway, about seven years ago, I got offered a package and I was old enough to e-tire in big blue parlance, right? <laughs> so I left the company and worked for a couple of years at a place called Future Workplace, which was a boutique HR consulting firm in New York run by a woman named Jean Meister who had written a book called The 2020 Workplace. Um, and it was a great experience, but my focus is, is not HR people with all due respect, but it's the other side of the equation. I'm based on these multiple careers. I've codified how I navigated through them. And I do workshops now at universities that I call how to succeed at jobs that don't exist yet. And that's really my... That's really my passion is helping kids, learners of any age, but certainly Gen Z learners and early career millennials. It could, you know, that's sort of the focus for me. Like, how do I get them 
interested and excited and relaxed about what's coming and what what they're going to be doing in the next 5, 10, 15, 50 years. I mean, lifespan is going up, right? So they're going to be working and doing interesting things for a long time. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but... Well, that, that is a very interesting uh, career that you've had. It's interesting. The stuff you're doing is now as well is is, is quite pertinent to me. I, it was only the other week, actually, I was doing a, a series of webinars for the University of Westminster for their upcoming graduates because, you know, they're entering this quite, you know, weird world of work that, that does not allow them to really see um, how they might, you know, fulfill their dreams that they've been, you know, these guys would happen to be sort of doing the architectural courses and, even those guys are thinking maybe we're not going to just walk into uh, into the next uh, into our first job easily. So we were talking to them uh, a lot about you know trying to tackle this in a, a creative, innovative way, which it sounds like you know you're all about as well. And and I would imagine there's a lot of people out there now who are you know perhaps even at a crossroads where they think you know they they maybe just been made redundant, maybe they feel uh, under threat in the role that they're in, um, maybe they even think their industry is is um, one of the ones that won't make it through this situation what 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 would you say to those sort of guys that have to that have to pivot what would your advice be to them Chris well so I mean I have a um, I always try to bring sort of a socio historical perspective to these kinds of conversations right I'm, I'm a bit of a as you say a future gazer or, or workplace um, prognosticator if you will but I think the thing to keep in mind, especially for the, the people who are just graduating from university or even high school and trying to figure out what to study um, in college, um, is that there, there are new opportunities, and I try to cast this in a positive way, that are emerging at what I call the intersection of historically disconnected disciplines. So an example I cite is nanopharmacy. So that's building machines at the nanoscale to deliver medicine at the atomic or molecular molecular level. And to point to real-world examples, MIT just launched, well, it's about a year ago now, they just um, opened a $400 million facility focused just on nano. I mean, that's a big, big number. They have this huge, beautiful, brand-new building on the campus in Cambridge, Mass., and with, you know, seven floors of clean rooms, and they're focused on nanotechnology across really every discipline and really every vertical. I mean, drug discovery for sure, nanotechnology kinds of things, um, nanopharmacology. The flip side of that is that the three chemists who won the Nobel Prize, like three years ago, won it for nanomachines. So again, there's this, you know, there's a lot of focus on that. And there are now things like neural dust, these uh, ingestible or implantable medical devices that deliver medicine or pharmacology directly to the cell or the tumor or the wound where it's needed, as opposed to sort of things like chemotherapy, where you're trying to attack uh, cancer in a specific place and you just bombard the entire body. So, so the idea is that there, I would encourage today's learners and recent graduates and whomever to think about where they're unlikely but interesting intersections. So to architecture, you're talking to your students at Westminster, there's a lot of focus, for example, on AR and VR. Right, so being able to walk people through sites or build sites and share them with clients or customers or colleagues or partners um, in a virtual space and sitting at your desk like we're doing, right, without having to go anywhere. But uh, new ways to apply sort of historical architectural skills um, in a new setting using technology. 
Yeah, I, I would. I would even take. You know, th- there's some really good specific examples there. But I'd even say to, to anybody looking, um, you know, at the, their next role and and trying to to really stand out from the crowd, which is you know part of what you need to do. I think right now, yeah, you can take that that sort of basic concept and think, you know, what's happening next in the industry. Get into the, you know, get a grip of the mega trends of whatever industry you want to get involved in, because it's, you know, when you're at that sort of cutting edge, I always, I always like that, that sort of uh, idea that uh, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> yeah. Um, this idea that, you know, if you have a little bit more knowledge than the rest of the guys, that makes you look particularly clever. And it, of course it does. And I, I say, I said this to the students and I say it to actually everybody who, who I talk to who's going through an interview process. I always argue that you should have really good questions to ask at the end of an interview. Um, in fact, the questions that you ask are, are almost as important as the, the answers that you give. But one of the questions that I always encourage people to ask is, is around the industry that you're, you're entering or that you're being hired within and the megatrends that are going on there. Demonstrate that you understand and that you're interested in the sector and that you understand what's coming around the corner by asking a question around a megatrend. Now, for for instance, for those architects, you know, the, the idea of megacities is a big concept in, in architecture because, you know, you've got places like Jakarta that are just growing off the scale. And, you know, all of the, the sort of architectural issues around, you know, these great city masses. And it may, that may be changing now with COVID, who knows? Uh, but that was, that was one of the things. So you, I think it, if you can be a future gazer, um, you look different to everyone else who's getting interviewed that day for that role. Yeah. And you look like the guy that is, or the girl that's bringing knowledge rather than just the same as everyone else. Yeah. And I would even say, I would take it one step further and encourage people in interviews to be proactive and say, you know, what is your company doing in this space? Are you doing something mm-hmm. interesting? Are you using VR and AR? And to what degree, what's the appetite for innovation? I mean, I've done that, you know, in many interviews over, over the years and you get a pretty quickly, you'll get a crisp, you know, sense of uh, if it's a place you want to work, really. And if it's if they're doing something interesting, if they're aware of the trending, or if they're sort of entrenched and they're going to just ride out their existing business model until it collapses or or is disrupted by, you know, another company or an upstart or you know somebody. Well, I'm not, is. I'm not surprised by that, you know, from an ex IBMer, because you always think, you know, IBM is this great monolith, you know, one of the great companies of the world, if you like. But they always had to watch out that they, you know, they had to innovate, didn't they, constantly to to stay ahead of the game, to stay in that in that sort of position. Yeah, I mean, people would always say nobody gets fired for hiring IBM, right. and they they got opportunities to do lots of things. But ultimately, you know, in the early days, they just made computers, and then they became this this incredible, uh, you know, sort of. Well, I guess they probably would even call themselves a tech innovation company, something of that that order. So, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that that's that's for sure uh, the way that you need to think when you're when you're uh, in an interview situation. Yeah. Try and challenge a little bit and find out yeah. what these guys are doing next. Yeah, the other thing I'll say is I often cite there's an interview with Laszlo Bach um, in the New York Times, Thomas Friedman, an op-ed writer. Right, Laszlo Bach was the chief people officer at Google for many years. He's since mm-hmm. left and gone to an HR startup, but um, in the interview, they they ask him, you know, what does it take to be a Googler? And he mm. says, and this is, again, this is, you know, sort of his take, and it's definitely for the media to some degree, with all due respect, right? Um, he says they don't look at GPAs or standardized test scores. It doesn't tell them anything they need to know. 
They look at people's ability to connect dots in unlikely ways, to, um, to look you know, across disciplines at the way um, interaction might be facilitated, uh, to be able to conjure a strategy or an approach to getting an end of job and articulate it, but then being able to acquiesce, or emergent leadership, he calls it, right? To say, well, Bob or Betty has a better idea. Maybe some of my approach could be incorporated into that, you know, sort of collaborative problem solving, right? And at the very end of his list is expertise. Now, to be fair, they have legions of coders, you know, tweaking search and Google Docs and whatever. But again, the portfolio of a company like that is changing so rapidly. Um, the products and services that they're offering are emerging and evolving constantly. And this happens at every business, right? To shut down divisions and start new ones to address market need, addressable opportunity. Um, but the idea is they need people who can make those shifts and help drive those shifts, right? Um, well, that's a, that's a very interesting point you make. And given your background, it, it's a sort of thing that I was keen to ask because one of the things I, I feel I'm guilty of or my industry is guilty of is, is the sort of development of expertise linear careers. You, you talk about your career being nonlinear, and I agree with it, it, it is. But there, there are lots of people who have expert linear careers now because, frankly, if you're going to, if you're going to engage uh, a headhunter to find somebody for you, um, you want that person to be a sort of 95% fit. And, and that's what we get paid to, to deliver, a sort of bullseye fit. So we end up delivering shortlists that are, you know, exactly on the money. In fact, generally speaking, they're the, the, the sort of next guy in the line from your nearest and dearest competitors that we, we, <laughs> we provide in the shortlist. Yeah. And that, that has created in, I think, in the, the bigger economies, um, a lot of specialization that I see where people have a linear career. Whereas actually when I, when I recruit in smaller countries like the Netherlands, like Belgium, and even places like Australia, where I find there are more people who are generalists who have had multiple careers, who've had, you know, they were a general manager of something in, you know, the automotive sector. And then the next thing they're in IT. And then the next thing they, they even go into health, you know, which just wouldn't happen here. Um, I think more people are going to need to, to make a change. How do they do that? You know, how do you, how do you sort of pivot in that way? Well, so at a meta level, you need to be ready to learn, unlearn and relearn. Right. But, the thing that I often tell when I do these workshops, again, for like Gen Z learners and early career millennials, um, based on my experience, mostly at IBM, I say to them, don't be intimidated by the job wreck, right? I say very often it's one of two things. It was written by someone to describe what the person in that role did before they left, or is written by a hiring manager whose, you know, purple squirrel parameters are like, you know, what's the ideal person going to do in this with the skill set they're going to bring to this? And I say very often, neither one is actually accurate. And certainly in this day and age, I mean, maybe 10 years ago, it would have been, um, you know, not as true. But I remember being in, in situations where I'd go into a job interview at IBM, and this was quite telling. It was to, to get out of strategy and work in marketing and communications at corporate headquarters in HR. And the woman said to me, this VP, she's like, well, you don't, you're not an exact fit, but you have sort of 60% of the skills. Um, this other piece of work that we need done, we'll have Kathy do that because she knows how to do it. It'll be a bit of a stretch, but she, she can handle it. And this other piece will teach you how to do that, um, but we'll make it work we'll, because you have, again, 
skills at a meta level, creativity, creative problem solving, being resourceful and resilient, um, that we can make this work. So what I say to job seekers is, you know, if the job rec is like 60% and you think it'd be interesting and there are skills you could learn um, that would take you on to your next career or that would deliver benefit in the near term to the employer, go for it. What are they going to do? The worst case is they're not going to hire you. Best case, they're going to put you on a list and say, well, how about that guy, Chris, that was in here six months ago? He didn't really have exactly the right skills. Or that woman, Betty, who kind of had some interesting stuff, was passionate about where our business is going. Let's bring him or her back in because the portfolio has changed or the market has changed or the technology has changed, right? I agree with a lot of that, Chris. One of the things I say to people is all the all the job specs I've ever had have been 80% fluff. You know, they, they are, as you say, they could be written by the HR team to fill a, to fill a, a page of A4 um, because, and, and often that's with a lot of the sort of general issues that they think the role should have. But hiring managers generally have uh, two or three bullet points that they want to see. And they are all about solving the problem that they've got. Yeah. You know, the role is there to solve a problem. If you can hone in on that, you can actually look much more um, of you can look much more like the solution if you understand what the problem is. So, the, the the issue with that in the modern world, as you probably know, is is you know if you're if you're applying to a job online, well, first of all, you know it's a bit of a you, you, your odds are very long. You know right. they used to be two hundred and fifty to one. Um, I think they're more like five hundred to one now in terms of your odds of success to to even you know get into a situation where um, somebody will see your CV or, or call you forward. Right. So you can you, but I agree. I think these days what you need is a different approach, which means that you 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 get to have the conversation. You get into a situation where you're talking to the decision maker about their problem, and that isn't often going to happen through an online application, but it can happen through your network yeah. and how you approach an individual or, or a company and tell them that you're interested in them. And that's, that's a lot about what my course is about, actually. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to check out your course. I'm, sure, I'm curious to see it. <laughs> but again, yeah. I want to encourage people to be, be proactive and come in like with a solution. To your point about what's the problem they're trying to solve, if you come in with a creative approach that maybe they hadn't thought of because they're sort of heads down focused on the quarterly you know revenue call or whatever cadence call um and get them thinking about show that you've thought about how they might solve it in a more interesting or futuristic or creative or cross discipline way that's going to make you stand out it's not going to be right for every situation they're going to be hiring managers who are like oh no we need somebody who just does this and that's all we need, and thanks for stopping by, and that's a little too loony for us, but uh, good luck. Whereas the right situation, you know, you'll, you'll get hired. You'll, get, you'll be the, the right move. I mean, I agree with that. I think it's just about getting into that right situation and uh, being, yeah, being in front of the right person at the right time. And I think that's what a lot of people are going to have a problem with in the first place if they do the sort of you know, search, click, and apply um, with a CV that doesn't fit exactly actually you need uh, different tactics to get in front of people and i think uh, if you can approach it in a more creative way you've got much better chance um but look i really enjoyed the conversation today i think it's been fascinating thank you so much for your time well thank you no my pleasure glad to be speaking with you cheers chris that's brilliant thanks very much all right bye-bye 
I hope you agree. A fascinating chat there with uh, Christopher Bishop, who is a multimodal careerist and uh, certainly has had a very interesting career. Um, he's also done a little bit of uh, work on LinkedIn, actually, on, on one of their LinkedIn learning platforms and created something called the Future Proofing Your Data Science Career. And whilst that does sound like it's very specific inside there, he's got a, um, a bit of more general training, which I think a lot of people could learn from. So please do pick that up. Um, and of course, if you are interested in making a career move at the moment, check out some of my free resources, which are at uh, my site, careermovesecrets.com. Um, I've actually added to what was already there, which was the job search masterclass, which I recommend you take. Um, now there is a CV or resume masterclass as well for you to take that uh, I think will really get your CV into shape. And of course, if you're super serious about to landing your next role and you believe, as I do, that you really need to do something a bit different and you would like to get trained in how to uh, stand out from the crowd in the marketplace and really attack it in a much more structured way, then check out my full premium course, um, which is at the same site um, and is something that I think uh, really will pay dividends for you. And if you're enjoying these podcasts, please uh, subscribe because there will be more Career Move Secrets podcasts coming very soon.